Okay, so imagine this. You're a young rising photographer working to really stand out in a hyper-competitive industry, and then you get a call one day from Iman and David Bowie asking you to shoot the cover of Iman's next book after two covers shot by two of the world's top photographers had already been rejected. Well, that is exactly what happened with my guest today, Indrani Palchowdhury. And she rose to the occasion and absolutely knocked it out of the park. That moment would become an inciting incident, leading to ever more opportunities to deepen into her wildly imaginative and really compelling magical realism style and launch years of award-winning collaborations, image making and storytelling with everyone from HBO, Vogue, Vanity Fair, Pepsi, Nike, and L'Oreal to icons like Beyonce, Gaga, Bowie, Kate Winslet, Pharrell Williams, Eugene Brayrock, Jay-Z, and just countless others. And in Johnny's work is exhibited in museums worldwide, in the permanent collections of the National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian. And over time, she has integrated her love of image making and storytelling with this lifelong passion for service in the name of social justice and impact and expanded from still images to film, including directing the powerful Girl Epidemic documentary about sex trafficking and slavery. And beyond directing, advocacy has really taken a much more central role in her work in life with positions as the co-host of the Global People Summit at the United Nations, the host of New York Live Arts Humanities Symposium, and co-founder and executive director of Shakti Empowerment Education for Women and Children in India. She also lectures at her alma mater, Princeton University, on mobilizing millions with art and film for human rights and social justice. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. I know you were born in Calcutta, spent the first seven or so years there. And I guess your mom was British, working in service of Mother Teresa when you were a kid. So you were sort of around that whole ethos at the youngest of ages. Yes, I, I was part of the volunteering process because I translated for my mom. I, my dad's Indian and growing up bilingual with a mother who wasn't, uh, it was very essential for her. So f- from the age that I could translate for her, I did. And um, so I was very much involved. And at the Home for the Dying, the orphanages, it was a very intense um, environment, but uh, I saw it as beautiful. I mean, these were people were my friends and and I've, I felt very useful, you know, from a very young age. I, I felt um, needed and, and that was incredibly empowering because, I, you know, just having someone to talk to for someone who's going through an end of life experience is uh, incredibly powerful. And particularly being a child, I think um, I was, uh, I was particularly loved uh, and, and, and needed in that situation. So it, it was, it was very transformative through, throughout my life. It's been something that I go back to as, as you know, those moments when I need to find my my better self i i remember that uh, that that we all have that ability to help on a on a very fundamental level yeah i mean to know that from the youngest age and to know from the youngest age that simply your presence can make a difference in someone else's life i think it's really powerful because i wonder if some of us actually never learn that you know in, in, let alone later in life uh, if not ever well, it's 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 a lesson that I was fortunate to learn, but I've often forgotten. And you know, you have to keep reminding yourself that uh, life isn't about what you take or what you get out of it, but what you what you can be for others, what you can provide. That's that's where true happiness comes from. And I feel in our culture here, we have it inverted, and that's why people are so filled with misery. And when you look at a place like India, which objectively has so much suffering and people are, there are so many millions who don't have enough. And yet there is a much greater sense of peace, a greater sense of harmony for the most part. Yeah. I I have always been um, fascinated by that as well. It seems to me that a lot of cultures that focus more on the inner life than the outer life are the ones that seem to, at least from the outside looking in, be able to identify with a a greater sense of ease, even in hard circumstances. I don't know if ease is the right word, but a sense of meaning, a sense of, you know, value in life and purpose in life around them, even in, you know, while the outer life may be quite fraught. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that I learned from that experience with Mother Teresa, and I got to sit at her feet in Sunday school and, and, run around. I didn't know how 
important she would be to the world. At the time, she wasn't so famous. In fact, there was a documentary that uh, was what uh, caused her to have that global renown. And um, ironically, that's part of what I do now is help to amplify stories. But um, my experience with her was interesting because it, it was often surrounded with her strengths of character, but also conflict because people like my mother, who's a very strong character herself, had different ideas about how things should be done. And so um, there was a lot of of uh, voices raised and tempers <laughs> running high. And I realized that, you know, anything that you do with great passion, uh, there is going to be tension. So we often think of of someone who's trying to do good as, as being this force of peacefulness and calm. And it isn't necessarily like that, but uh, the, the results are, are also complicated of, of Mother Teresa's work. And, and I've studied them more in depth as I've grown deeper into my own social justice practice and come to realize that, you know, my goals in life are, are not the same as hers, but, um, you know, we all have to find our own paths to, to peace. Yeah. The other thing that occurs to me in, in that experience is that at a really young age, your um the experience of impermanence is being normalized. Yes. Which is something that again, it, at any age, especially in, in Western culture, we don't talk about it, we don't acknowledge it, we pretend it doesn't exist. It's this horrifying thing that we, you know, it just it shouldn't be a part of the human condition. Um and yet here you are at the youngest age, single digits, and it's around you every day. And it seems like you you found a sense of of peace with that um, and understanding that it that it's it's natural and it's okay, which is kind of astonishing. Well, it's it served me very well in my life to have that foundational understanding of impermanence and also the value of suffering in a certain way, um, which uh, and I, and I don't mean that lightly as as in oh one should be grateful that you have suffering, but there are so many wonderful things that can come of suffering that one doesn't recognize necessarily in, in the moment. But understanding that context, I think, helps. I, I often feel, um, feel that children that grow up insulated from trauma, you know, which is what people tend to want to do. You want to protect your children from those experiences. But then when they come across it, as they must in every life, they don't have the tools to deal with it in the way that they would if they had been able to understand it better from a younger age. Mm, yeah, so true. I think as as a parent, you know, every parent, you ask a parent what they want for their kid, and the first word out of their mouth very often is, "Well, I want them to be happy." But the, but the deeper truth is, before any of that, they want them to be safe. But sometimes we conflate safety with safety from uh, anything that might in some way make them not happy, which means that we take any form of adversity out of their experience. And we don't realize that we're also removing the capability to deal with adversity because they never developed those skills and learned them. I think it's such an important idea. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're being brought up in this uh, extraordinary environment from the outside looking in, but you know, I'm guessing for you, this is just your lived experience. This is your life. This is, this is your day to day. It sounds like also you you gravitated, I think as so many kids probably growing up in that tradition, to a lot of Indian mythology and stories and culture, which are so rich and vivid. Tell me more about your sort of uh, gravitation towards that. 
Well, I, I was very fortunate to to grow up in this rich culture, and my parents were humanists and feminists, and very determined that I learn all cultures. But of course, growing up in India, the culture that was the most, uh, the greatest, uh, had the greatest influence on me was the the Indian culture. And um, I grew up in a in a big extended family, which means I had. 300 family members that um, in the Indian tradition, you know, we we think of as families here. We tend to lose touch with people a few generations removed, but there it's a vital part of life. So I, I got not only my parents' perspectives where they took me to, to church, to the mosque, to the, you know, temple to each, uh, try to have a balanced view. Um, but I also grew up with these amazing festivals and um and I remember very keenly one of my first memories is is being in a in a festival to Durga who's a goddess with a thousand arms and she rides on a lion and everyone calls her mother and I distinctly remember thinking that she actually was my mother and this the person that I was you know had been born to was sort of just this temporary character and so it, it, it yes I had a very profound influence on me yeah, I mean, when when you look at some of those stories and you're attracted to them as well, there's some really fascinating foreshadowing, right? In the work that a couple of decades later, really, um, in the voice that you would find in image making, which is sort of similarly magical and fantastical. Yes, yes, the creative force that that uh, unleashed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what happens uh, at seven that leads the family um, to leave? There was, in Bengal at the time, there was a, a lot of unrest. Um, there was an uprising. And my father, who was the chief financial officer in a tea uh, tea company, he was actually trying to uh, help the workers to, to get paid properly. There was a, there was a lot of, of issues of, uh, of people not, uh, not being properly taken care of, the workers. And in any case, um, this uprising led to terrible situations where uh, heads of companies were being held hostage by the workers. And it was terrible for the workers because then the police would come in and tear gas. And it was a you know, very a destabilized moment in history. And my parents just decided that they wanted me to have a uh, an upbringing without without that kind of conflict, and they they were they were very afraid, and 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 they were concerned too that uh, that I wouldn't get as good an education there as I could elsewhere. Of course, looking back now, I, I realize that you know there's wonderful education to be had everywhere, and but certainly in India, for a young woman growing up at the time, it felt like opportunities were were less prevalent. Mm -hmm. So we moved to England and then to Canada. And it was a very destabilizing time for me. I, I I loved my life in India and my life in England uh, was very, very different. So I suddenly, everything was turned upside down for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you go from knowing the, the environment and the culture and having 300 brothers, sisters, cousins, aunties, uncles, you know, like around all the time to then dropping into a place that you don't know. And then you know, it's just you and like the, that yeah. like small family unit, I, especially at that, at that age, I have to imagine your head was spinning in so many different directions. Yeah, it was very hard. And, um, and getting to know my mother's family, you know, you grow up with childhood myths of, oh, these wonderful people over there and, and finding my mother had a very 
traumatic childhood. And I didn't know that until that point. And so I, uh, it, it was very hard to, to, um, to deal with the, just the, the change. I, I, I changed completely as a person. I became withdrawn and I ended up hospitalized uh, with something that every time I go to the hospital, it would get better and I'd go home and I'd get sick again. So it was like some kind of traumatic uh, experience for me. Mm. So when you, when the family then goes, so I guess it goes from the UK to Toronto then? Yeah. Which Toronto, I don't, I don't know about then, but I know Toronto actually has a, a really substantial Indian community. It does now, but at the time, uh, we felt very alone. Uh, I, mm. We didn't. We weren't part of the Indian community there. It, it wasn't a very big community at the time. It's grown dramatically, but um, yeah, my my parents were. They're kind of. Uh, I guess they were also shell shocked by all the changes. You know, they had a very rich life in India, and my father couldn't get a job in Canada. He was an accountant um, due to racism. So it was it was very surprising. He came he went there for a job but then it quickly went away. And my mother ended up um working as an accountant because she's English and even though she hadn't studied it, she'd bring the work home and my dad would do it. So it was this <laughs> this crazy world where he although he had all these skills, they weren't valued because of his race. And my mother, who had not, none of the skills, was able to get the jobs, um, but she had to hide the fact that she was, or she, she ended up hiring my dad as her assistant. And so she had to hide the fact that they were married. <laughs> it was a very complex situation. Yeah. I mean, have you, in hindsight, had, have you had the opportunity um, or ever sat down with both of them and sort of um, asked them about what their, what their real experience was during that sort of season? Yeah, well, we were very close, so I was very aware of their experiences, and I'm actually working on a on a film that's that's mm. their story, and it's uh, it's been really really interesting to go deeper into those experiences. Yeah, because I would imagine you know, as a kid, you're especially at that age, you're so very often um, me focused. It's like my world has been turned upside down. I like all my friends, all my family, and and this is so hard for me. Um, but it's got to be fascinating when you have the chance to sort of understand what your parents are going through and see them as human beings and as, you know, like partners in life as well. Yeah. And negotiating those agreements. <laughs> yeah. Well, that became very complex. And uh, and then I had a stepfather who was Jamaican Rastafarian. Um, and so I was raised with him as well um, and his family. So I had this wonderful multiplicity of, of influences and I was very close with him. Um, and he had he suffered from schizophrenia. So <laughs> that was a lot of, of very um, intense experiences, but he was just a wonderful, wonderful human being. So I was very fortunate. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it, to a certain extent also, the experiences that you describe, again, it's so interesting, like the way that all this mythology starts to foreshadow and the, the voice that you would take on and image making down the road. There's so much chaos. There's so much complexity in your early life. And you've got to figure out a way as a, as a child to navigate it, to be okay with it, to make sense of it in a way that is not unique to the sort of the, the much higher stakes world of image making and filmmaking down the road. Um, I wonder if you have any sense that that was almost like a, a laboratory or a proving ground to help equip you with those skills. Certainly. And I think um, dealing with mental health issues in one's family, I think, teaches one a great deal as well in, in terms of, you know how the words you use are interpreted by others, how, how to help others to find others that you care about to 
to be in touch with their their better selves and and yourself as well. So you know that that uh, complicated uh, sort of negotiation you mentioned that word before certainly um, became a part of my life and became a really useful skill when working with celebrities and actors and uh, artists you know bringing people together um, it is kind of a mad process there is this chaos of different opinions and different perspectives but that's where the magic happens when you can bring them together and find uh, a way to harmonize between them yeah, and and for the record, we're not saying that all celebrities have mental illness. <laughs> not at all. We're just Although, saying there's a lot of <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of struggle and complexity, and yeah, just a, a lot of a lot of stuff going on. Absolutely, and that, yeah, the the creative spirit is itself exactly a, yes, sort of yes, conjures a lot of emotions. Indeed, it does. Um, when does the impulse to tell stories through imagery or to create images? Um, and I'm, I'm guessing, yeah, you would never have used that language as a kid. But when when do you start to become aware of that impulse being something meaningful to you? Oh, I began um, to be obsessed with photography and at about the age of thirteen, mm. um, and then at fourteen, I went to use, uh, visit various studios because I wanted to intern. I wanted to learn photography properly, and they laughed at me. I was a skinny little Indian girl. And they said, you can't carry stuff. What, <laughs> what use are you to us? Um, but luckily, uh, along the way, a couple of them said, well, if you just sit there, we'll photograph you and you can learn from that if you want. I said, great, that sounds wonderful. So I started modeling and it was a, a, just getting in the door and getting to learn from these artists and then getting to travel around the world and work with some of the greatest photographers and filmmakers was, uh, was really, really exciting. So this is happening also in your teens. So you go into this place wanting to just learn the craft and and they're sort of like, no, be on the other side of the camera. Um, how does that turn into, okay, just local, be on the other side of the camera because we don't think you're capable of actually helping in, in the right. production side of things to modeling. And then how, do, how does, I can understand how that happens on a local scale, but it sounds like pretty quickly, this becomes a big thing in your life and becomes a source of, you know, you're, you're going to school, but you're also, you're, you're modeling, you're traveling around the world, you're being paid, you're like, this becomes a, a, a teenage career for you as well. Yes. Yes. Um, I struggled because I was very short, but I had a great deal of ambition. I didn't think I was particularly attractive. <laughs> so that was good. And I'm, it was my insecurity, I think, which actually helped to um, helped me to not get too caught up in it. But I did spend many years traveling the world while studying. I, so I'd, I'd go to Tokyo or Milan or both in the summers and then go back to school. And even during school, I was I was working. And initially it was the, the attraction to, to learning and also um, being able to help uh, with, with my, my family's financial situation I went to a private school. They wanted me to have the best education, but they couldn't afford it. And so, um, you know, I'd be brought into the principal's office and told, if your parents are late again, we're going to have to kick you out. And, you know, so so there were all those financial pressures and um, and with the mental health aspects as well, it felt, you know, I, I felt very thrilled to be able to help my family. Yeah. As you're doing this, it sounds like, you know, you're checking some boxes in terms of service to the family and helping out. But also, you know, it sounds like you're very much a student of the craft, like kind of taking notes on what's happening, you know, oh, on the yeah. other side of the camera the entire time. 
Yes, I was. And even with the modeling, I, I went to the library and I read every book there was on modeling. You know, <laughs> I'm a nerd. I still am. And that that's sort of the foundational <laughs> approach. I, I went to modeling school and I, I negotiated a class. That they gave it to me at, at a, a cut rate because I, I was so convincing that I was like, look, I already know a lot of this stuff. So, <laughs> um, yes, it, 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 I, I definitely took a very serious approach to, to learning about photography and then filmmaking through that process. And it was an extraordinary experience because what I realized later, having many interns myself, you know, it's hard for them to learn necessarily when they're off actually doing stuff. So I had the experience of just getting to sit there and watch, which, uh, and, and be in the center of, of the action all the time. So I learned a great deal from it. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, I, I would imagine not just about the craft, you know, like how do you create the shot, but also um, I have been on uh, many different sets, whether, you know, like film or, or photography and the dynamic on a shoot can be uh, healthy and constructive and productive. And um, it can also be um, the exact opposite. And I have seen, uh, <laughs> both ends of the spectrum. And um, I would imagine that your lens on not just the craft, but just on the human condition was probably taking the culture of the process in as well. Yes, very much. And I think that that, you know, being a, being a woman as well, I think I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I not modeled because women typically are, are not chosen as, as assistants and and they have a hard time, you know, getting in the door and getting to experience much of that. And uh, so, so yes, I learned a great deal about the business side of it as well, and and uh, and also what it's like being directed by uh, by someone who has a very, you know, there's often a confrontational kind of approach of the photographer trying to pull something out of you and you're resisting because you know, uh, and and so so I got to learn both what works and what doesn't work mm. from the perspective of the being the subject of the, the shoot. Yeah. I mean, and it had to be so valuable. We, um, we had Mark Mann on the show a little while back, who, you know, like takes all these iconic, super close up, super shallow depth of field portraits of many celebrities. And I remember him sharing that, you know, he saw a lot of this same stuff. And one of the things that he loves to do is literally show up with just him like not even an assistant and just, and he said it was, you're always trying to figure out like there's a moment that, you know, like if you're lucky, it happens and you capture it. But so often that moment was elicited from just real easy storytelling and conversation and like creating a really gentle interaction with the person that you're shooting. And so it's, it's so interesting to see how people approach it so differently, but I think all with the same end in mind, like they want to create something extraordinary. Absolutely. Well, there's there's so many ways to do it, and of course, I think that uh, through my career, I've experimented constantly with different approaches and different ways of of connecting. Because ultimately, I think as, you know, as as a photographer, as a as a film director, what I'm always looking for is that divine spark within the person, the way of of that moment when it's almost like they they open up or there's a little crack and you can see something that's profound and true and that connects the the viewer to the viewed you know that, that there's a there's this moment of of magic um a moment of recognition a, a moment of truth mm. do you know it in the moment when that happens sometimes 
Um, well, I've, I've worked so many different ways. So I had a partner for um, the first part of my career. Our approach to photography together was we kind of created a, a distraction for the subject. Uh, our dynamic, we had so much tension between the two of us that th that often put people at ease because then the focus wasn't so much on them. So part of what was uh, what was fun there was sort of allowing the music and fun and dancing and those things to um, to be sort of a focal point and letting the subjects not feel like they were as much under the gun because we were so busy you know, tearing each other, uh, tearing <laughs> each other. <laughs> That's what I came to realize was sort of the method we developed. Um, but uh, as I've been a solo artist, my approach is changed a lot and and it's uh you know i'm i'm a very calm kind of focused person and so I, I think that the the nature of the work that i've done is is also evolved more when i worked with david bowie you know a big part of our shoot was talking about the meaning of life and and the universe and you know these theories of whether there are aliens i mean we had these beautiful amazing conversations during the shoot day and, and i think that kind of comes through in the images as well so so each each shoot is different yeah no i would imagine when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We took a bit of a jump here. You um, (laughs) fill in just a little bit. Um, You're building on this experience that you had. Um, You end up finishing school, um, spending these years, and then... um, and you end up at Princeton, but if I have the timing right, before Princeton, you actually take about a six-month photo pilgrimage. You go back to India. Yes. And then at the same time, end up starting a school for 300 yes. or so students in this interim window. What was going on there? <laughs> so, well, the, as a model, I got to, an actress, I got to travel the world and I saved up money um, along the way. I, I was... I didn't get lured into all the ways that uh, models often end up disenfranchising themselves because they don't have a, a goal. Um, you know, I was always very, very scrupulous. So um, so with the funds that I'd saved, I took my parents back to India. We hadn't been back for over a decade. So that was really exciting, um, just getting to reconnect. And uh, and then I did the six-month pilgrimage around India, taking photos. And, and it was a spiritual pilgrimage as well. I went to the the mountains and looked for Shiva and uh, and found all kinds of of interesting things. But I also uh, went back to my home where I had this really transformative experience. I, I arrived with my parents um, to my home, and and there were refugees living all over in our family home. Uh, so yeah, they moved in <laughs> in all different parts. And a lot of the family had moved away. It's a very large family home. It's like a palatial ruins. And I was angry when I saw these people and they're like, that's our garden. That's where the roses were. And there's people living there and they're like have goats. And, and uh, at first I wanted to get them out. I was like, this is terrible. We need to rebuild the wall. They've broken the walls. And I had this amazing conversation with my father because I was crying at the same time by seeing, you know, how they lived. They were living in, in such terrible, they had really nothing. They were refugees. They, they, their kids were half starving. I mean, it was, it, it was a mess, you know? And I, and I was like, well, how can we get them out? But then where, where did they go? And, and at the same time, I also, I wanted to help them. And, and my father said, you know, if, if you, if you got them out, you know, what, what do you think would happen to them? And and that really got me thinking about, well, this is all they have. And um, and in fact, you know, I I don't need <laughs> this. Uh, you know, they're not they're not taking something away that's taking away from my ability to survive. But I can't 
I can't be okay with the way, you know, that they, they have no, there's no future for these kids. They're all, they're working in the fields and factories if they're lucky. Um, and so I, I, as I traveled around the country and thinking about, you know, what, what could be done. And I just realized just the great need and, and how, and how fortunate I'd been. I, I often had thought of myself as hard done by, you know, having my family having financial challenges. And then I realized, you know, how fortunate every single one of us in the West is. I mean, even the homeless people have far, far more than the homeless people in the third world. Um, so I, I really wanted to help. And I, I, it, I changed my way of looking at them and thought, well, what can we do to, to serve them and to help them to, to be able to have a, a meaningful future and, and, and be able to help others too? That became um, really, really exciting as we built the school. And initially I, I started on my own as this crazy idea and I convinced my dad he had always wanted to to give back, but he wasn't ready to to come and move there and 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 take care of things. But I couldn't manage it on my own, so so he did. He had um, he had just recently retired, and uh, and he did move back to India to run the school, and, and he's he's been running it ever since. Um, I, I've been the director of the school, and he's the on the ground um, doing the day to day. So yeah, it was it was very exciting recognizing that the process of learning to help others is what teaches one the most. And so that was a big part of our approach with the kids and then with with their mothers as well as teaching them to teach others so that they could learn how to create a better life for themselves. And this is all on, this is all on, on the grounds of what would, what was the old family home or was this a different location? Right. So you essentially turn that home, that location into a school and rather than saying, how do we yeah. take it back? You're like, well, what if we did the exact opposite? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do we give it to them fully and, and make it, make it count, make uh, our efforts, you know, have a lasting uh, positive result rather than just leaving the status quo. And and then ultimately we ended up actually purchasing another building because with the family, there were a lot of different factions and not everyone was on board with the idea of bringing uh, the poorest of the poor into the home. Um, so initially we started that way and then we, we moved it to another, a new building. And in that building, we actually uh, do weddings in the evenings, which mm. helps to fund the school. So it became a self-perpetuating system. Oh, that's great. So your dad ends up staying there, uh, running the school. You come back, Princeton awaits, um, studying anthropology, but still shooting the whole time. Because now at this point, yes. photography is, is you know, it's, it's a DNA level impulse for you. Yeah. And actually prior to starting at Princeton, I started my photography career professionally. And, uh, and I met Marcus, who became my my partner, um, who was a classical harpist. <laughs> so we met the year before I started at Princeton and we started doing photography together. We went to Paris and we had a lot of success, um, small things, but we got published in various magazines. And so I had all these years of experience in photography. He had none, but he had bought a bunch of expensive equipment. And I met him two weeks later as he was testing it out on on unsuspecting subjects. So, so that's how we began our career together. 
so the, the harpist who had really cool equipment <laughs> yeah. and the person who has the impulse and the desire and the experience perfect <laughs> yeah it, it was he, what could his, go wrong there <laughs> his motive well his motivation was meeting beautiful girls <laughs> which is the motivation for many many photographers i have to say um but yes yeah, so that that you know i put an end to that as well <laughs> because we became a couple and then i i did go to princeton but i was working full time the whole time so going back and forth yeah I'm I'm curious why, I mean, beyond the fact that it's pretty hard to say no once Princeton has said yes, but you kind of know what this thing is inside that lights your fire. You're doing it. You're succeeding at it professionally. What was the impulse to still say, well, I'm, I'm still going to go to college? I've always been very hungry for knowledge. And I, and I have to thank my, my father, my, both my parents. They gave me a lot of freedom from a very young age, which is unusual for an Indian family. You know, I traveled the world and they trusted me to do that. But the deal always was that I would eventually come back and go to college. And so I, I did take off that time and uh, I felt that I, I had to follow through. And, um, and I studied anthropology at Princeton, which allowed me to go deeper into, into my fascination with human nature and learning these sort of scientific basis upon which um, decision-making occurs. And it was really fascinating. So, so I loved it. And, and I, I, my only regret was that I didn't spend more time at Princeton and less time doing the photography at the time. But uh, of course, once you start a career and then it was going well, and then David Bowie saw our work and we had, you know, all of these um, surprising things started to happen with it, um, it kept calling me back. And, and I, I spent most of my time doing photography. Mm. So it, it sounds like the, um, the, one of the really big early catalysts, one of the big early inciting moments that sent you in the direction that you've been going for a long time was this connection with, um, I guess originally it was Iman and then Bowie. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how, how did they first discover your work? Well, I'd been shooting for a number of different magazines, really underground little magazines in, in England. And then a makeup artist saw some of the work. And it was, it was really crazy that the image, I discovered the digital aspect of uh, photography at that time. Uh, it was probably one of the first to really explore all the possibilities of what you could do with photos in the computer. And uh, as, as we started shooting digitally, it just opened up more and more doors. Uh, so my early experiments were putting people on other planets, they were, you know, turning humans into aliens, you know, really playing with those sort of goddess references. Um, so really out there kind of work that fashion magazines were like, what is this? <laughs> they didn't really get it. But this makeup artist loved it and showed it to Iman. And Iman uh, was working with David Bowie on her book. So this was the first book that she created of her life. And it was a retrospective of all this incredible photography. And David was the art director on the book, I believe. The book was called I Am Iman. And they had shot the covers twice with two of the top photographers of our times and rejected them. And they decided that they wanted to try someone new that, you know, and, and go for rather than looking backwards, looking forwards to what was coming next. And that's, that's how I got to do that, uh, that shoot. And I created, I pulled on my anthropology studies and created 
Iman as a, as a fire goddess, as an African fire goddess. And so that was really exciting getting to bring those things together. So walking into that shoot, knowing that you've got Iman and Bowie as your clients and that they had worked with two of the top ph photographers and rejected them, pressure? <laughs> <laughs> Every step of my career, when I've done anything worthwhile, it's been under tremendous pressure. And, and you know, growing up in the chaos of Calcutta it really prepared me well for that. I think I work best under, under pressure. Mm. Well, clearly you created, you know, an extraordinary image. And it seems like that was also, you know, that was the opening move in you doing a lot of work with various people at super high profiles throughout the entertainment and the music industry. And also taking that same style, that you know, like uh, magical realism, that sort of fantasy and saying, let's see how far we can push this. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly, and 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 I think that um, that my studies really did help that. I I went deep into mythologies around the world, and they always somehow were were the refrain that were in the back of my mind whenever I was on on set. I was always seeking to to connect with those mythological heroes through the subjects that I that I was working with. So it was it was a fun way to explore human potential, you know, and combine the artistry of, of the, the person that I was working with, with sort of this older traditions and, and um, chain of, of mental imagery that mythology creates. Mm. What, I mean, it's fascinating to me on so many levels, but um, you end up working with people who are emerging and at the, the top of the fields, you know, from Beyonce to Gaga and all these different people who have their own really well-defined, not just brand, but image of like, what is the story that I want to tell? What is my sense of taste? What is my voice? So I'm curious when you bring your background, your sense of anthropology meets, you know, fantasy meets realism, and then you're working with people who have such a strong point of view, I would imagine that there is a lot of fire in those interactions. That could go either way. <laughs> I never had that experience. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm. I keep my fire on the inside. <laughs> uh, tell me more I'm, about I'm very, that. I'm very easy to work with, and my approach has always been: let's discuss what it is that you want, you know, and how you see yourself, and let's start from there. Let's look at your work. So I would study deeply the the work they'd done before, who they were at that point and create my own projection of where I thought they could go. And, and while from the outside, it may appear that these artists have this very strong self-image, that is created in collaboration with the people around them. And so, for example, with Beyonce, when I photographed her first, she was with Destiny's Child, um, and I photographed the group together. We experimented, we did nice pictures, but we didn't really have the opportunity to, to take it very far. It was one of those quick shoots. Um, we did some sort of flying through the air kind of ideas. So we did start a little bit on a goddess trajectory. But when I was asked to photograph her, her solo debut album art, Again, it had been photographed by two other photographers at the top of their careers and rejected. And so the, this theme continued throughout my career and still does. Um, but anyway, it, it was very interesting because she and her team, they all had very different ideas for her. Her, her mother brought these long, elegant gowns. The record label wanted her to be young and hip. 
And she wanted to, the word she kept talking about was universal, powerful, this idea of dance, you know, bringing that together. And uh, of course, for me, that's a goddess, you know, and then that imagery really came from, from my tradition. And, um, and it was, it was only later that I realized just how much the image that became her Dangerously in Love album cover, that it is exactly a replica of the dancing Shiva, the Natraj image, which I I had a, a, a beautiful statue of that I brought from India. So it was something I looked at every day and uh, recognizing when I put the, the photo up that, that somehow we'd recreated that. That was, that was really fun. Ah, that's amazing. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the same time that you're doing this extraordinary work and working with some incredible people, and as you've described yourself, there's a lot of fire internally with you. And I've also heard you describe yourself as on the quieter side, on the more introverted side. Yes. Raising my hand along with you, by the way. And behind the camera, you know, like you are the one who is collaborating to create these extraordinary images of other people. And yet you find yourself at a certain point being the focus of a series on Bravo about you. So all of a sudden, you're the subject of the story. You're the one with cameras trailing you as you're out there doing your work. I'm curious how that experience was for you. 
Oh, that was that was a very tough experience. That was definitely one of the, <laughs> the hardest experiences of my life because having the camera on me, of course, I had to dress up. For many years, I had completely, I dressed in baggy pants and shirts. I didn't want the focus of, and, and, and you know, I put out everything I had into making my subjects as magnificent as possible. I didn't want to distract from that by even spending time to think about what I was going to wear. So suddenly we have this show. I had to look good. I had to represent because, you know, ultimately that's part of it. You're, you become a subject and you, you have to think about your audience. And so, so much of the show was constructed and the show actually was my initial idea. I created a pitch, but I was interested in the creative process and I wanted it to be about how a group of people come together to create these identities and exactly the question you're asking, you know, how, how do we create these brands, these icons? Um, so that was the, the objective, but of course, we didn't have control over the edit and uh, and the things that were chosen were were otherwise, but that's um, that's another story. But it, it really had to create scenarios, and that's really how my filmmaking career started was was immersing myself in that process again from the inside of how do I tell a story that I'm okay with rather than the story that the network uh, you know they they want they want drama they want interpersonal conflict and and we certainly had plenty of that. you got to have your beats what what is like every 90 seconds or something like that in right, uh, right, exactly, tv yeah. right yeah yeah and so in order to get anything of meaning into the show i had to create that those scenarios as well and and the shoots many of the shoots were artificially constructed for the purpose of the show in the sense that they were real shoots but you know they probably wouldn't have we wouldn't have done them if it wasn't for the show because our actual shoots that, that we were being paid to do, people didn't want to have those uh, seen because the, the network refused to give any assurances that, that they would edit anything out. So um, so Lady Gaga and Kim Kardashian and all of these wonderful people agreed to come on our show and trusted us, even though the networks w- wouldn't give them any any assurances that they'd be kept safe. So we had to negotiate. And and part of the reason I wanted to do the show as well is I wanted to bring the audience to India and to the school and to help promote that because uh, it was really important for, for the school to increase its fundraising. But also I really wanted to inspire young people who are fascinated with celebrities and fascinated with fashion and recognize the beauty of, of giving back and, and how important that had been to my life. Yeah, I mean that's that's such an interesting bridge to make because you know we, we do have we're we're living in a culture now that is um, fame obsessed to uh, yes. no small part. And um, I remember seeing a study I think it may have come out of Harvard three four years ago where um, students were asked, "Would you upon graduating?" Actually, it wasn't coming out of Harvard, but it was Harvard was in it. That students were asked upon graduating, "Would you rather be the assistant to a famous person, a celebrity, or the president of Harvard?" And the assistant won hands down. Uh, it wasn't even close. In fact, it was uh, the winner was to be the assistant to J Lo. Um, and and in in fact, that's a hard job, <laughs> right? Second to that was um, being Jesus. <laughs> so so um, so it was a really interesting statement about how fame obsessed we are, not for what we might do with that status for that renown. But simply for you know, like the ability to be that way um, and to be in yeah. that that circle of um, of fame. So what makes me is that 
you know, this was really, you were trying to bridge the gap, you know, between yeah. um, being high, super high profile and then asking the question, well, what do we really do with this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the school for me had always been my motivation to work so hard. I actually, I mean, I love photography and I love working with these wonderful people, but I wasn't really that excited about, you know, creating advertising and, and f- fashion images. I mean, it was fun to explore creatively, but ultimately it's superficial. And, uh, and, and so if it wasn't for my school and needing to provide for those kids, I think I would have gone in a fine art direction much sooner and, and spent much more of my time on social justice than I did. But I, I, I did come to, to be able to do that um, over time, which, yeah. is, which is really great. And, 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 you know, it seems like that, that moment for you was also a bit of a, a transition point because you're, you know, this also launches you it sounds like much more intentionally into into filmmaking beyond um, capturing stills and focusing your lens on really an, with an activist orientation. So like yes. now you're making images and now you're telling stories and now you're capturing scenes, but it's not so much creating fantasy and building up individuals, but now you're telling the stories of profound needs, sometimes profound trauma. Human trafficking becomes the real focus of your lens uh, and a film. And it sounds like that has remained, you know, a growing and growing part of what you're about and why you show up and do the work you do now. But there's an interesting dynamic there, right? Because when you're the filmmaker, you know, you're you're doing this dance, especially when you're talking about really traumatic situations, but also situations where other people have the ability to help. You know, you're doing this dance of how do I tell the story in a way that invites viewers in, but also doesn't re-traumatize the very people that you're trying to help. I'm, I'm curious how that sort of like um, worked in your mind as you're doing this work. Well, it's, it's really interesting because I jumped in, you know, some of my first projects were going to Central African Republic to film for the UN um, with Mandy Moore, a uh, distribution of mosquito nets uh, to fight malaria. That was actually my, my first commission. So I, I jumped right into what I really loved because I separated from my partner Marcus, um, and I and I just went for for the things that I'd been unable to explore uh, in in our partnership together. So um, yeah, that the process was was immediate for me. Um, you know, jumping right in, and no one teaches you. You don't. You know, so many filmmakers go out there and they perhaps want to do good, but very often the very process of creating documentary is re-traumatizing the victims. I mean, it's so obvious if you have any compassion, you can see that people don't want to necessarily share their stories. And I've seen filmmakers push people far beyond their comfort zone, push them till they cry. And then that's like, oh, we got the tears. And and that's, right. that's the sort quote, of the goal. The money shot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, and, um, and seeing how that you know, sure, that filmmaker maybe is going to win an award and make lots of money off of this. But for that individual who then has to go back to their everyday life and now with the fear that their secrets are exposed, you know, a lot of these topics are are, um, not only traumatizing for the individual, but certainly for their community as well. And reintegrating them is one of the biggest challenges, certainly in trafficking, but in, in most areas where people are traumatized, helping them to overcome it requires 
so much effort. And, uh, and I think that a lot of, you know, I came to realize through doing documentary, just how, how documentaries don't necessarily help even, I mean, they can, but it's hit, hit and miss at best. And, uh, and very often, even a successful documentary can actually make things worse in, in various ways. So it's complex. And I, and I wanted to, you know, really find ways to address the issues without creating harm, but, but creating good. So one of the ways was reintroducing fantasy, use, you know, which I'm very passionate about, you know, those myths, doing scripted films based on real stories, but then taking those elements and bringing actors or even like with the girl epidemic, which was on trafficking, I shot it with kids that are at risk of trafficking, kids who are actually benefiting from the nonprofit that brought me out there to do this film, but having them tell stories that weren't their own stories, you know, it was a, a level of remove that allowed them to have fun with it and, um, and be re they're really familiar with the, the threats and what it might be like. So there was this realism but it was it was a fun cathartic process for them and not uh, not in any way harming them yeah i would imagine it's such a delicate dance for anyone who has like a hardened sense of empathy yeah. you know and and also a really interesting experience for you because you clearly have this you know like fierce creative impulse uh and a strong sense of voice and taste and at the same time you know when you're doing something like this the, the fundamental question is, you know, like, first, am I doing no harm? And then is this in service of, of that bigger thing that we hope it yes. is? Yes, that's exactly how I make every decision. And, uh, you know, not to say that I always make the right decisions, but I certainly try to. Um, I try to think it through and, and really uh, understand the story um, before I jump in and, and create it, which I think, uh, you know, that process of studying and research, you know, I use my anthropological methodology to really understand what I'm dealing with. And, and I learned a lot from those early experiences where, where I jumped in without that background, the malaria, mosquito nets, um, it was quite a, a an eye-opening project because I, I learned that the peoples that we were there to serve they had very mixed uh, feelings about the mosquito nets, and I and as I was interviewing them, I was trying to understand where does this come from, you know? And, and you talk to the authorities who say, "Oh, well, they they don't understand, you know, they're simple, or whatever." And I think, no, I don't think that's what it is. And it turned out that that they were starving. That uh, malaria, while it does kill huge numbers, most people recover from. So people have malaria time and time again, and they know that there's you know, they have a chance of surviving, but starvation is not something you can survive. So they were using those nets to fish with, and the nets were covered in DDT. So lots of uh, things that I learned along the way to look at the bigger picture and how, you know, how really we can help. And which is not to say that the mosquito nets are not helpful. They are, they're wonderful, but there's so much more that's needed in each of these situations. Yeah. There's a level of nuance and complexity that sort of uh, may not show itself yes. on the surface. Yes. As you transition to make this a lot of the focus of your work and you're in these um, situations, you know, I, I've had a number of friends and spoken to many people who in some way, shape or form were involved with NGOs and they were on the ground or aid workers or even people who were in the media covering that for extended periods of time. And I know it can be really hard on you psychologically and emotionally also. I'm, I'm wondering how you just personally, emotionally, psychologically experience this work and whether there are 
things that you do to, to take care of yourself through it? Well, I meditate. Um, and that to me has been um, the biggest blessing. Um, so that's, that's how I, I'm able to, I feel like it's, just, it's kind of an armor that I put on each day, connecting to the source and reminding myself of the reasons why I'm there and, and, uh, and how fortunate I am to be able to be, um, to be able to be on the side of, of helping them, trying to, to make things better. So I, I view each of these opportunities as an extraordinary chance to be useful. And so I, I think that I have a huge amount of empathy that's always driven me. And that's been how I've connected with the celebrities. And that's how I connect with survivors. And, and I don't really see any difference between them. I recognize how lucky I am to be able to learn from people who have had these uh, traumatic experiences uh, each of them has, has taught me so much. And so I go as a, as a student, as someone who, who wants to, to learn what could be done to help them, um, and also trying to have compassion for, for all in the process, um, which, is, which is hard because I do get really angry at the perpetrators. Um, and that's been a big process for me, is making peace with with all the characters in any given situation. It's very easy to go in looking for justice and looking for retribution and those kinds of things. And while justice is incredibly important, a lot of times just helping people to survive, for me, takes precedence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know, you know, you were certainly a student at Princeton, but you also, um, you at a certain point, wore the teaching hat as well. Tell me a little about this. Well, over the years, I've worked with many different nonprofits, and uh, and that's been really rewarding. And I've worked on films that uh, that aim to to help people to find their higher selves. And what I came to realize is that direct conversations with students can be even more impactful. And uh, as much as through film and through uh, through nonprofits, one can help. There is so much power in, in the one-on-one -on -one conversations that you have as a teacher. And uh, through, through my school in India, directing that, seeing, seeing how those kids really thrive when given direction that motivates them, um, I was really drawn to speaking. And so I, even though I was really shy, I overcame that. I worked really hard to be able to, to articulate myself through words instead of just through images. And, uh, and then I was visiting lecture at Princeton on mobilizing millions with art and film for social justice and human rights, which is my passion. And that was an extraordinary experience. And I'm continuing to, to teach now. So uh, I certainly still prioritize creating in the world, um, but I, I balance that with teaching directly. And uh, I had the the privilege of being the organizer and host of the art of anti-racism and social justice at Princeton, which was um, bringing together speakers and, and artists from, uh, from various different backgrounds to talk about how we can use art to, to fight racism and, and to promote social justice. Mm. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So hanging out in this container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Um, I think to live a good life is about finding oneness with others, finding that divine spark that connects us all and finding ways in which that connection can drive you 
to being your, your best self. So when you see someone suffering, that connection that you have to them is what allows you to have the ability to help. And it's, it's a divine blessing to be in the position to be able to help others. So recognizing that for what it is, you know, that, that to me is the source of, of the greatest joy and, and goodness in the world. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.